my name is Kyle. If you're visiting with us, thank you for being here today. I serve as lead pastor here. I want to welcome you. Um, make yourself at home. Uh, we are glad you chose to worship with us. <clears throat> the weather uh, has, has me under it a bit. <laughs> uh, I've been snotty and, and can't hear out of my right ear. So uh, this will be fun today, but I'm excited to preach the gospel to you. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can open to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. It is Easter, as many of you know, and, uh, and so we are, we're going to talk about uh, really what we've been talking about, which is our need for new life, our need for new birth. Uh, we have new birth because Christ resurrected, amen? We have the opportunity to receive new life because Christ did, in fact, rise again. Uh, he is risen, He is risen indeed, and so... Uh, We've been in this series here for the last several weeks called The Law and the Gospel. And what we're looking at is an interaction between a man named Nicodemus and Jesus Christ. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's called the teacher of Israel. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the, the, the ruling body of Israel, the nation of Israel. And, uh, and, and he's one of the top guys in this ruling body. And he has just seen Christ during Passover week performing miracles in the temple. And so he comes to Christ by night and he asks him some questions. And so that's the passage we've been looking at. Many of you know John chapter 3, uh, at least because of one verse that's found in John chapter 3, right? John 3.16. Most of us are familiar with that, but many of us have no idea the context for uh, that verse. That verse comes in this passage, this interaction between Christ and Nicodemus, he's declaring, Christ is preaching, I should say, the gospel to Nicodemus. He's sharing with him how he can find new life. And so the reason we've called this the law and the gospel is because Nicodemus was a man who was devoted to the law. He had put every ounce of effort that he could muster into keeping the law and into teaching others how to keep the law. And so we think of law-abiding uh, Jews, when we think of law-abiding Jews, it's hard to kind of have an image in our mind of what we mean because we don't live near uh, large Jewish communities, right? We don't know exactly what this would have looked like in the New Testament sometimes. One of the closest things we have today is the staunchly religious person, someone who never misses church, someone who is always seen and make sure they're seen praying. You know, they're, they're the first, not that this is bad always, not everybody who does this offering that out there, but they're the first ones to comment on a Facebook status praying, right? And praying for you. They want everyone to know, I believe in prayer, I'm praying. Uh, they, their worship is to be seen by others and so they don't miss church services. Uh, they're seen regularly in the house of God. <clears throat> they don't watch rated R movies. You know, they don't listen to secular music type things. So this is what we mean. That, like, we would look at this person and say they're morally upright. They've got everything figured out. Um, their life seems to be well put together. It's not marked by destruction, at least that we can observe. And that would be a, a religious person today. I mean, we grew up, if you grew up in church in South Arkansas, you either were this person or you knew this person. And chances are you've been this person at times in your own life if you grew up in church in this area, right? Because that's much of how the gospel is portrayed. It's, it's moralistic 
um, it, it's getting things right, it's dotting the I's, crossing the T's, and so therefore you will enter the kingdom of heaven. You have your fire insurance by being a good man or a good woman. The problem with this is this is not directly what Scripture teaches. And so this man, Nicodemus, was doing everything he knew to do to enter the kingdom of heaven. And as you'll see in this interaction, he's told that he cannot even see the kingdom of heaven, let alone enter the kingdom of heaven. But why? Well, because to enter the kingdom of heaven, to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. You can only be born again by receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, it's the message of salvation for sinners because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. Amen? It's by His work alone that you can be saved, that you can have confidence in salvation. And so here's Nicodemus approaching Christ, a man of the law, and he's, his confidence is in himself, and he doesn't come with the right questions. And so Jesus tells him, here's, here's what you really need to know. He comes as someone who thinks he's already been approved by God, but he comes to find out he's not yet been approved by God. <clears throat> and so let's look at John chapter 3. I'm going to read 1 through 8, and then we're going to spend the bulk of our time looking at verse 8. Um, if you're able, would you please stand as we read God's Word? Uh, these are His words. These are not mine. Uh, we believe the Bible to be true, to be authoritative, to be sufficient for all things in life and godliness. And so uh, when we read His Word, we want to honor it as such. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Remember I mentioned he had just seen Jesus performing these miracles in the temple, and so he comes at nighttime to conceal himself, to not show himself. We've talked about this in earlier weeks. He's trying to protect his image. And he makes these statements that no one can do these things unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then here in verse 8, Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Amen. The thing that I want us to see today is that you were born again by the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. You can have a seat, sorry. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and this time we have together in it. God, I ask that your Spirit would illuminate the Scriptures today, that we would see the words of Christ, that we would have life in them. John testifies at the end of his gospel, that, that he has written these things so that we might believe that Christ is the Messiah and have life in him. 
And so, Father, that's my request today, that we would hear the Word of God and that we would find life by the Spirit of God. So in Christ's name I pray, amen. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and he's, he's here to question him about the signs that he performed in the temple. And we're not given specific details about what these signs were. We, we, we don't know specifically what the miracles were that Christ performed there. But the reason that Nicodemus calls them signs and he questions is because he knows as a man of God, or at least a man who has studied God, a man who has studied the Word of God, he knows that signs point to a spiritual truth, that a physical sign is revealing something about the kingdom of God, that the sign itself is not the main thing. There's a truth behind it. And so he's wondering, what do these signs point to? Now, if you had to choose the greatest miracle that Jesus performed, you know, which one would you choose? Which one comes to mind if you think of the greatest miracle that Jesus performed? Is it when he turned water to wine? Is it when he gave sight to the blind man? Is it when he fed the 5,000 or walked on water? Is it when he healed Lazarus? I say healed Lazarus. He brought Lazarus back from the dead. There were various healings also. But maybe you think of some of those things. And each one of those is, is truly an incredible thing, right? It's, it's flipping the physical nature of something on its head. It's, it's reversing it. It's reversing everything that can be seen by the eye, and it's showing it to be uh, something else altogether. It's undoing what is already done. And if we saw it happen today, we would no doubt be amazed. However, each one of those things, each one of these miracles is a sign. It's pointing to a greater spiritual truth. Now, there's kind of an overarching truth that Jesus lays out again and again, and it's, it's the, this truth that each one shows that Christ is the King of heaven and earth. He talks about how these things are ushering in the new kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. It shows us that Christ is all-powerful, that everything is under His authority, that He is the source of redemption for all things. And as great as those miracles might be, they do not compare with the greatest miracle that God performs. I say performs because it's still actively happening. There's a great miracle that takes place every single day somewhere on the earth. That is the miracle of the new birth. When Christ causes a dead heart to rise again. When Christ creates life where there is no life. This comes to us by the power of the Spirit. That is what Jesus is saying in John chapter 3, verse 8. He's showing that the Spirit causes this new birth. And what we know about the new birth is that the power of God transforms both your physical and spiritual life. You begin to put to death the deeds of the flesh. The way that you live physically changes because you have been transformed spiritually. This is the part that Nicodemus was getting backwards. He was trying to live transformed physically by his works and his deeds and his, uh, his words, things that he taught and preached and the things he said or didn't say. He was reforming his life and so therefore trying to prove himself before God. But he had the order reversed. It's the new birth that creates new life. 
The morally good man, though, struggles to see this. He struggles to see his need for new life. When you are a good person, it stinks to hear you need to start over. You must be born again. And so Nicodemus struggled to understand this truth because he was a good man by all accounts. By all of his peers' uh, testimony, he was well thought of. He was well regarded. He was well liked. He was well approved by others. I'm sure many thought him to be the most morally good, the most spiritually good man of all. However, the trust, uh, sorry, the truth is that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned to our own way. The truth is that all mankind has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the truth is that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. The truth is that there is none righteous, no, not one. Everyone seeks his own way. The the bottom line is that moral goodness does not equal righteousness. It does not equal righteousness before God. In fact, you lack on your own, apart from salvation in Christ, you lack any true righteousness. Any true righteousness. You might be moral. You might do good things. You might be well thought of by co-workers and peers. You might be a good businessman, a good businesswoman. You, you may have your life together by all appearances. You've got the best Facebook pictures. Your Instagram has the best vacations, the best meals. Your family photos are envied by many and yet your life is crumbling. It's, what happens in the new birth is greater than anything else God has shown us in Christ. That The greatest miracle is when God grants you new life in Christ by the power of His Spirit. It's greater than when he created the world. It's greater than when he raised Lazarus from the dead. It's it's greater than any other miracle of God. Why? Because in the new birth, you are born again. And you're born again by the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Jesus here for Nicodemus is trying to help him understand. Nicodemus has questions. In fact, in the next verse, in verse 9, which we'll look at next week, he says, how can these things be? He just can't fathom what Christ is saying. But Christ uses an illustration here about the wind, and I think it gets Nicodemus to this question of how can these things be? Because it's unraveling what Nicodemus thinks about the the new birth or new life. He, He thinks it's caused by being morally good, and what Jesus shows us here in his illustration of the wind is that it's not caused by man's effort or man's goodwill at all. In fact, man has no control over the new birth. And so Christ explains this through this illustration of the wind. I'll read to you verse 8 again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So here's Nicodemus. He's worked his entire life to secure for himself approval from God. He he wants to be accounted righteous before God by his own works, by his own efforts. 
And Christ looks at him and says, the new birth is totally a work of God by the Spirit. If Nicodemus were going to receive new life, it would not come from within himself. Rather, it would come to him from outside of him. It would come from God alone. We looked at this verse in John chapter 1, verse 12, when we started this series. But in 1, 12 through 13, the Apostle John writes, he's talking about the people who did receive Christ as Lord. He says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Now listen, he says, who were born, not of blood, that doesn't mean that they weren't living, breathing people, he's talking about born again. They were not born of blood, they were not born of the flesh, they were not born of the will of man, but of God. They were born of God. It's God who causes the new birth. Again, we looked at this in week one, but let's look at how Christ is now talking about the Spirit of God and the work of the new birth. Here in this verse, the Greek words for wind and spirit are the same. And so Christ is using them to teach a parallel truth, that there is something about these things that is similar. Uh, It's just one more way, honestly, that God has ordered the world in such a way that it is always testifying that God exists, that there is a creator, that, that nature testifies to the glory of God. Here's one more way we see it in the wind, and hopefully after today you'll never think about the wind in the same way again. Christ teaches Nicodemus that the wind operates in the physical realm like the spirit operates in the spiritual realm. For, for Christ, what we learn from Christ here is that uh, is a few different things, and, and Stephen Lawson in his book, in New Life in Christ, lays out a few observations that I want to share with you today. The first is that God sends the wind. God sends the wind. Jesus begins by stating that the movement of the wind cannot be directed by anyone. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. It can't be directed by anyone. You cannot control the wind. It blows whenever and wherever God desires. We see this in Genesis 8, 1, as uh, right after the flood, we read this in, in chapter 8, verse 1, and God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. Who made a wind blow over the earth? God. The wind goes exactly where God sends it. It accomplishes exactly what God intends for it. Not only can we not control the wind, we cannot predict the wind either. Weather forecasters cannot even get their predictions correct. How many times have we seen on the news forecasts for hurricanes blowing up through the oceans, headed for landfall, only to take sudden turns, only to move in a direction that was not forecasted? Sometimes it's to our praise. Sometimes it's to our lament, right? It still wipes out a bunch of things. But the forecaster is not able to predict it. He's not able to control it. He's just simply making observations. Lawson goes on to say, so it is with the work of the Holy Spirit in the new birth. He is directed by the will of God the Father. The Spirit blows into the lives of those chosen by God for salvation. The path the wind takes accords with God's sovereign plan. The Spirit moves and regenerates spiritually dead souls according to God's will. 
So we are not in control of the Spirit's direction. We do not have the power to command it. We do not have the power to cause it to bend to our will. The new birth occurs by the power of God alone. And so that's one of the first things we see is that you cannot control the wind. The second thing we see about the wind is that it is irresistible. It's irresistible. The wind cannot be hindered by you. The wind blows where it wishes, Jesus says. When it moves at full strength, it overpowers whatever lies in its path. Just last week, we had uh, tornadoes uh, even in Shreveport, tornadic activity in Shreveport. And so yesterday, we were driving down to visit my sister and brother-in-law, and, and we're on Mansfield Road, and there is, just to our right, trees, massive trees that have been blown over that have not yet been cleaned up. The, the wind did what it wanted. It was irresistible. That tree could not withstand its power. You've seen the devastation of, of a tornado, that the wind is unstoppable. It, it does not yield to anything. What happens is everything yields to it. Everything is overpowered by the wind. And so the parallel, Lawson goes on to say, the parallel that Jesus is making is obvious, that the Spirit of God is irresistible. Why? Because He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And so the Spirit of God is irresistible in His omnipotent movement to cause the new birth. He goes on to say, the will of God is far greater than the will of mankind. The Spirit shatters human pride. He conquers our resistance, and He overcomes all human excuses that have long refused Christ. He humbles once stubborn hearts. The Spirit softens hardened wills so that they will believe in Christ Jesus. So, in the same way that a house cannot stop the wind of an EF5 tornado, the heart of stone cannot stop the Holy Spirit from breaking through and creating a heart of flesh. The one whom the Spirit of God blows upon will gladly submit wholeheartedly to the rule of Christ Jesus. When Paul preached in Philippi, the Lord did this very thing for a woman named Lydia. Lydia was called a worshiper of God in a general sense. She was a God-seeker, but she was not yet born again. As the Apostle Paul preached, the Spirit went to work. Listen to Acts 16, 14. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what was said by Paul. He gave her a heart that could be obedient. How do we know? Because she became hospitable, which is one of the evidences of the Spirit's work in someone's life. It's not the only evidence. You can be hospitable without being born again, but this is one of the evidences. She opened her home to the church that was then born at Philippi. And so God works to create new life, or He works to strengthen new life that is present already when the Word of God is proclaimed. The third thing we see about the wind is that it is invisible. Again, it blows where it wishes. Jesus says, you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So you can't see it. You can't see the wind, but you hear it. It blows where it wishes. You know that it's blowing because you see evidence of that, though you don't see the wind itself. You can see its effects, right? If you've been at the boys' club 
lately playing baseball, you can look up and see the American flags that are nearby and see that they are blowing. You can figure out which direction the wind is going. You see the effects of the wind. You see dust blowing around. You see wind blow, or rain blowing sideways this week, right? You see the effects, but you don't see the wind. Oftentimes, the effects cause awe in our hearts, right? Like, there, there's, a, there's a fear of tornadoes because of the effects of tornadoes. You've seen the footage. You've seen the devastating effects of a tornado, and so there's an awe about a tornado. There's a fear. Why? Because you're not controlling a tornado. Regardless of what any word of faith preacher might say, you're not controlling the weather. Amen? The wind is invisible to the naked eye. You can't grab it. You can't hang on to it. You cannot control it. You can't even necessarily predict its movement. You just notice its effect. Again, Lawson says the same is true of the movement of the Holy Spirit in the new birth. You can't actually see the Spirit giving uh, the new life, but you see the effects of new life. You see the operations of regeneration. You see what takes place, putting to death the old man afterwards, taking on the new man. That means putting away sin and taking on holiness, a life of godliness. The Spirit can't be seen, but you can see the powerful effects of the Spirit on a new life. You feel His conviction. You, you sense your responses. You're in awe that God works in your life. You're in fear of God as you sense conviction, and then you're relieved of your fear, and awe is made when you receive peace from God. Amen? You, you worship Him. You praise Him. You live your life in devotion to Him. These are effects of the Spirit of God. Though He's invisible, we see His activity in the hearts, and it's not, um, it's unmistakable. Consider your own life before you were converted. If indeed you are a true believer in Christ Jesus, you have seen the effects of the new life on your life. You're not walking in your sins, you're not keeping your sins next to you, you're not for against Scripture, you're for Scripture. You're taking in the Word of God. You're not adverse to the Word of God, right? You're, you're now a seeker of understanding. You want to know more about God. You want to know more about what His Word says. You want to know more about how you can live your life in allegiance to Him. You're interested in God. You're interested in His desires. You're putting to death your old desires, and you're taking on new desires, Right? But once you were against God, once you were happy in the lust of the flesh, in the lust of your eyes, in the pride of life and its achievements, but now you're not satisfied with those things any longer. Now you have a heart that yearns for God, that longs for Him. But listen, if, if you're here today and, and you think, well, I, I'm a believer, Kyle. I mean, I mean, I'm here today, right? I must be a believer. Please don't fool yourself by looking at your life and not seeing any evidence of holiness, not observing any fruitfulness. There's no fruit of the Spirit. You're constantly anxious. You're constantly uh, driven to, uh, to, to pursue your own desires, to do your own thing, to come to church whenever and however you wish, 
to not pray until things get really bad or to offer up prayers for people and then to never actually pray, to say that you read your Bible or to look at a verse on your phone and say, I have read my Bible today. Like these things are not evidence of the Spirit of God alive in you. And, and so if you're fooling yourself into thinking that by some small, like, like I can just squeeze the littlest amount out of religiosity and that proves that I'm saved, may God help you. May He convict your heart. You are not born again. Kyle, it's Easter. Go easy on us. We're supposed to celebrate the resurrection. Absolutely. And my God did not send His Son to die for you so that you could make a mockery of Christ. Amen? He didn't. Christ will not be mocked. You will not bear the name of Christian and live how you want and get into heaven. It's not happening. He will not be mocked. And so I urge you on Easter to believe the resurrection, to stake your life on the fact that Christ has been raised again. And if you truly believe that He's been raised again, live like it. Submit yourself to Him. Stop running from Him. Stop putting up walls against Him. Stop telling yourself, I'm a believer and then showing up on Easter each year. You're not saved. And if you are, if you are, you're extremely backslidden and you need to return to Christ. Christ says, Christ came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ did not come coddling sinners. He did not come coddling religious people. He did not come to not tell the truth. Christ came bearing the good news of salvation and His death and resurrection. And that if you were to truly be born again, it will be by faith in Christ Jesus. Trust in Him and of no other work. And all those whom he healed, all those who he forgave, and, and, and moments that we see in the Gospels, what did he say to them? Your faith has made you well. Go and sin no more. It's not your faith has made you well. Go live your life how you want. Please don't fool yourself. Don't buy the lie of universalism that is running rampant in our world today. That as long as you're a good person, there's no way a good God could send you to hell. You're not good apart from Christ. Your heart is defiled. It's desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all things. Jeremiah says, who can know it? You need to be born again. And you are only going to be born again if the Spirit moves upon you. You come pleading before God, save me. Give me new life. God loves to answer that prayer. But don't come to God assuming that you have new life. Don't come assuming that by your good works you're getting into heaven. Don't make a mockery of the blood of Christ Jesus. God loves to pour out grace. He loves to pour out mercy. 
But what does he say? What does he say about the humble and the proud? Right? He gives grace to the humble, but he reproves the proud. He turns away the proud. He has disgrace upon those who are proud. But there's grace upon grace for those who humble themselves before him, who see themselves as they truly are, and they submit their lives to Christ. That's what happens when Peter preaches at Pentecost. Acts 2, Christ is raised from the dead already. He's ascended into heaven. He's told the apostles, go and wait for the power of the Spirit to come upon you. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit has fallen. They begin to preach in other tongues, and people can hear them in their own languages. The mercies, the grace of God, the powerful work of God in the gospel. And Peter begins to preach, and he's preaching to the same to many of the same people who would have been in the crowd that call her, that, 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 well, first of all, that cried hallelujah as Christ is entering Jerusalem. Some of those would have been those who cried crucify him because he wasn't quite what they wanted. And, Christ, and Peter stands up and he preaches to them. And he says that you put this man to death. This man was put to death by the, law, the hands of lawless men. It's your responsibility. And they're cut to the heart, it says in Acts chapter 2. And they cry out, or they say to Peter, they interrupt his sermon, what must we do to be saved? That's the work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God caused their hearts to be generated and to say, to be regenerated and to say, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent. Repent and believe. And so they did. 3,000 souls were saved that day. The Spirit of God moved on their hearts. He created new life in them, and they were born again. Once these people refused the gospel, once they were crying crucify him, once they ran from salvation, they only wanted a worldly king, and now the Spirit of God has created life in them. And this is what the Spirit of God has done in each of your lives if you have truly been born again. Once you were happy in your sins, but now you're joyous in Christ Jesus. Now you have new life. The fourth thing we learn about the wind is that it is incomprehensible. It's incomprehensible. The route of the wind defies human logic. The, the path of the wind cannot be detected or predicted. Right? We've covered this, but we want to make this final point here, that the movement of the Spirit in the new birth is the same way. You do not know who the Spirit will move upon. You do not know in whom He will give new life. It could be the most moral person who says, I found myself in need of salvation from my sins, and so I've been born again. And you'd be like, oh my goodness, I, th I thought you were saved already. It could be the most immoral person, like, oh my gosh, did y'all see what the Lord did to that person, right? We love those stories. Clearly a movement from death to new life. This is the scandal of grace and mercy. 
It goes to the undeserving. It goes to the unmerited. It goes to those who humble themselves, not to those who look as though they've earned it. Ecclesiastes 11.5 describes the, the physical birth of a person. And it says, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So he's saying in the same way that the physical birth is it's incomprehensible, like we know what causes it, we won't get into that today, but we know what causes it, we just don't know when, right? It's not guaranteed. God does the work of creation. And so in the same way that only God knows how and when He will work to create a physical life or physical conception in the womb, the same mystery holds true in spiritual conception that produces new life in Christ. That is what Christ is teaching us. Isaiah also recognized this truth as he writes in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. He says, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? In other words, who can tell God what to do? Who can measure what he's doing? Who can see it? And who can tell him how to better do it? <laughs> and then in verse 14, he said, Whom did he consult? And whom, uh, sorry, who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? In other words, who showed God all these things? No one. God knows all things. God is behind all things. And so the meaning is clear. The Holy Spirit travels a path that escapes human reason. He, he always, however, operates with perfect wisdom. Because as the third member of the Trinity, He is God. He's doing what the Father commands. Paul, at the end of Romans 11, has talked about the new birth. He opens in Romans 1 just talking about the power of the gospel produces salvation. That There's nothing more powerful than the gospel of Jesus Christ to give new life. And he just expounds on that from chapter 1 to chapter 11. And at the end of chapter 11, he's, he's written all these things down, and he's just kind of caught up in a moment of worship, and he says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Now, he's talked about salvation. He's talked about uh, how people are saved that look like they shouldn't be saved, and how people who look like they should be saved haven't been saved, that, that not all who are of Israel, or, or not all who are Israel are of Israel. Sorry, not all who are of Israel are Israel. That it's belief. It's belief that creates new life. And he says, how unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable his ways? In other words, you might think about it differently. You might do it differently. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Rather be in awe of him. How unsearchable, how inscrutable is he? For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Just as Isaiah was saying. Who has given him wisdom? No one. No one. And so what we know from this is that God is worthy to be trusted. He's worthy of your trust. You can rest in the choices of his sovereign will. You can know that his ways are perfect. 
And because you know his ways are perfect, because you trust his sovereignty, because you know that it is he who causes the new birth, you can pray with faith for the unsaved. You can pray with conviction for those who don't yet know Christ as Savior. And know that you're going to the right place for those prayers. We know his choices are always directed by his love. And so I want to close by encouraging you in, in, in two ways. I mentioned John 1, 12 through 13 earlier. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, you do not inherit new life. We've said it before, but God has no spiritual grandchildren. You you are not a Christian because your grandmother was a Christian or your father was a Christian. Now, you might be led to Christ because of their belief. They may have had an influence in your belief, but you're not ushered into the kingdom because you had a believing grandmother. Does that make sense? There's no spiritual grandchildren. Everyone who is born again is a child of God, adopted into his family, co-heir with Christ Jesus, his son. And so you can't come today and say, well, I'm getting into heaven because my family has just always been Christian. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. He says that you're not born of the will of the flesh. In other words, it's not by your choice. It's not by your decisions that you've made. Nor the will of man. It's not by human efforts. Again, you can't, Nicodemus, yourself into heaven. None of us, none of us are the same level of morality that Nicodemus was. And yet he too must be born again. That's what Christ says. You must be born again. And so Christ says the same to all of us. Is that you there in verse 7 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago? It's plural. You must be born again. He's speaking. He's saying, you all must be born again. Y'all must be born again. Amen? How? Well, he says, but of God. You were born of God. They were born of God. To all who received Christ were born of God. It's by divine operation that you come to know Christ as Lord, that you receive him as Lord. And so here's two encouragements for you as as those who are believers in Christ. I want to encourage you today with this. You are empowered to overcome sin. Because the Spirit of God is alive in you. Because you were born again, you were alive in the Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead gives life to you. And it takes your spiritually dead soul and it makes it spiritually alive. You've been raised to new life. That's why we get baptized. That's what we're saying in baptism. We've been buried with Christ. We've been raised to walk in newness of life. Our old man is put to death. 
our old man, we've hung all of our sins, all of our faith and the forgiveness for the forgiveness of our sins on Christ Jesus. We've buried it with him. And now, just as he was raised from the tomb on the third day, we have been raised to walk in newness of life. Romans 8, 9 through 11 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So again, Paul's talking to the Romans here, and he's saying, the Roman the church here in Rome, and he's saying, don't just think, don't just think that you're in. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And he goes on to say, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. There's got to be evidence. There's got to be fruit of the Spirit in your life. And if there's not, you're not in. Don't mix that up because you're morally good. Don't think that. But where does morality come in, Kyle? We've got to clean ourselves up, right? Yes. Look, he says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If Christ is in you, though your flesh is passing away, it will die. You will not live forever in your current flesh. But when Christ returns, your body will be raised and you'll receive a new glorified body in heaven. Amen? You'll live forever in heaven. But right now, as someone who is walking in newness of life, you are waging war against the, uh, against the flesh. By the Spirit of God alive in you, you're saying, I want to follow Christ. But the flesh in you is saying, no, 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 no. Let's not give up this, this pet sin, whatever it may be. And you're saying, no, I'm alive in the Spirit of God. I'm putting that to death because it does not honor my God. And so he says, but if Christ is in you, although this body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. You have been empowered now by the Spirit of God to overcome sin and temptation. You have no excuse for continuing in your sin anymore. In fact, you have the very power of God that raised Christ from the dead, alive in you, to bring new life to your life. So we don't walk with pet sins anymore. We don't go on making a practice of sin, as John says in his epistle, the, the first epistle he wrote, 1 John. He writes and says there that we do not go on making a practice of sin. Sinners, uh, sorry, believers do not go on making a practice of sin. What does that mean? You don't go on doing the same old sins all the time saying, well, that's, this is just who I am. It's just the way God made me. No, it's not. You've been created brand new in Christ Jesus. Christ did not die and rise again so that you can keep sin in your hand and say, well, this is just who I am. No, it isn't. You have no idea who you are in Christ if that's how you're thinking. So your first step would be to just grow in your knowledge of what it means to be in Christ, your union with Christ Jesus. You are made brand new to do the works of God that he prepared for you beforehand. That's what Ephesians 2.10 tells us. And so you are empowered by the Spirit of God to walk in newness of life, to put to death sin and temptation. Secondly, you are empowered to share the gospel. 
this doctrine of regeneration, this teaching of Christ about the Spirit of God blowing where it wants, doing what it wishes, gives you power to be a witness for the gospel of Christ. You don't have to worry about your inadequate knowledge. Well, I just don't know how to answer the universalist. I don't know how to answer the person who believes in evolution. I don't know how to answer blah, blah, blah. Just bear witness to the fact that once you were blind, but now you can see. Tell them about the grace of God on your life. That once I had spiritual blinders and I was going my own way, but when Christ hit my heart with His Spirit, I became a new creation, born again, and now I long, long to do His will. And that's not of me, that's of the Spirit of God. And He'll do that for you too, if you'll submit your life to Him. But don't go on in your sins. Don't go on telling yourself some story. Submit to Christ. That's how you plead with people for the new birth. And then you trust that Christ, by His Spirit, causes regeneration in them. It's His work, not yours. You don't have to be super convincing. You don't have to be eloquent. Paul says, we didn't come to you like those other guys eloquent of speech, having all the right words to say. We came to you proclaiming the cross of Christ Jesus and Him crucified. That's the power of the gospel. So we open our mouth, we share the gospel of Christ, and we trust that He will cause regeneration in the hearts of those with whom we share it with. And if it doesn't happen the first time, that doesn't mean that God isn't going to move on them. We continue praying. We continue sharing. And as long as they'll listen, we speak. Amen? And we call to repentance. Jesus' command to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations is mandatory. Your calling is to advance the saving message of Jesus Christ into all the world. And you say, well, man, I'm... I I hate to use any profession because I'm sitting here looking at so many different professions. (laughs) The first one that came to mind is I'm a painter, right? How can I share the good news? I'm an electrician. How can I share the good news? I'm a banker. I'm a teacher. I'm a a stay-at-home mom. I I work in a factory. I'm a maintenance man. Whatever. Whatever. I'm a husband, I'm a father, I've I've got responsibilities, Kyle, I can't just go into all the world. No, Christ is doing the going into all the world by raising up believers who exist in all the world. You go into all the world by going into your home, by, by going into your workplaces, by going to your children and proclaiming the good news of Christ Jesus, but not only proclaiming it, living it. Don't just say, I'm a believer. Don't just say, like Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Don't post the thing up in your house and then never serve the Lord. Sit around and watch Yellowstone together as a family or Breaking Bad or whatever else. The the shows are whatever, but I'm just saying, proclaim the excellencies of Christ in your home. Don't undo what you're saying on your wall by what you're watching on your TV. And you say, well, Kyle, you're just being a Pharisee. No. 
I'm not saying you can't do those things. I'm saying be careful that what you do doesn't undo what you say. Walk the walk. Don't simply talk the talk. Amen? Live a life that honors God. Trust Him for the salvation of your children. Parents, you will not put your kids in the perfect church. Why? Because there's no perfect church. If there was, you and your child would ruin it. (laughs) Mine too. You won't. But what you are called to do is submit yourself to a church with godly elders, to submit to His Word, to follow Him, to learn how to disciple your children if you don't know how to do that. Parenting is simultaneously, it's the weirdest thing, it's simultaneously one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life, and yet it's so simple. The formula for good parenting is so stinking simple if we'll just deny ourselves. Deny yourself. Trust in Jesus. And so you go into all the world by going into all those places that God has already placed you. It's being faithful where you are. And so we can breathe a breath of fresh air. Whew, I don't have to fill out an application for Disciple the Nations this week, right? Like you can go where you're at. That's what God calls you to do. Be faithful where you are. Trust Him and His work. Paul again, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You were born again by the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And that's true for everyone else also. Amen? And so as we look to the resurrection this morning, we see the life-changing, the life-transforming, the life-beginning power of God at work in us also. It's the same power. And so finally, to any of you in here who are an unbeliever, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you've come today. I don't know why you came. I don't know if you're seeking. I don't know if you have some moral obligation as someone raised in the Bible Belt to go to church on Easter. I I don't mean that as a joke. That's how we grow up. But I'm glad that you're here to hear the gospel proclaimed. And I pray that God would save you from your sins. I pray that, that you would feel, know the drawing power of the Holy Spirit unto new life and that you would repent of your sins and turn to life in Christ Jesus. Would you stand to your feet this morning? I'm going to pray for us. The worship team will sing after I pray. It's, a, it's meant to be a time of response. And so I encourage you that if the Lord's directing you by His Spirit to respond to Him in some way, would you follow Him today? Would you be obedient to that leading? If you feel His conviction to repent of your sins and turn to Christ, would you do that? If you need prayer, I'll stand at the back. You can come back there. I'll happily pray with you. If you need counsel, you want to talk, I'm available. Both now and this week, you say, well, maybe not today, but I'll come see you this week. 
Come on. Office is always open. But don't leave today without either repenting of sins and turning to Christ, without repenting of sins and um, continuing your commitment to Christ, or without glorifying the Lord if you think, well, I come in today and I just don't have any of those kinds of burdens, but I'm so grateful for the resurrection, the power of new life. Praise Him for it now as we sing. Respond to the Lord faithfully today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is the gospel of Christ proclaimed and that here in our text today we have Christ proclaiming the gospel to a man who is much like us, much like our peers. He is dependent upon his own morality for salvation. And Christ says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. And so, God, we ask now that, that your spirit would, to use the reference here, would blow upon the hearts of unbelievers. That you would cause regeneration. That you would save your people today. Father, help us, all of us, even believers, to receive Christ today, to yield to His presence, to yield to His leading, to put to death sin, and to put on holiness. Father, it is imperative for each one of us here that we not only know the love of God, but that we live as those who know the love of God. So help us, Lord, to not harden our heart to correction or reproof. Help us to not harden our heart to saving conviction. But God, would you overpower us by your Spirit today that we would walk in newness of life with you. Father, we love you. We praise you for Christ that he is risen. And that because he has life, we can have new life. Because He died as the perfect sacrifice, we can know the righteousness of God as we trust in Him. Help us to receive it today. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who was slain, the one who has risen, the one who is our Lord forevermore. Amen.